0: Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, episode 21, Pseudo-Skepticism. What is the history of skepticism and what does pseudo-skepticism mean? Has skeptical inquiry of modern day really just deteriorated into dismissive debunking? Are we really swayed by skeptical opinion or does it just reinforce our own personally formed opinions one way or the other? This time on Conspiracy Theorology, we will debunk the skepticism and question techniques of self-professed skeptical investigators as we explore the skeptical appeal of pseudo-skepticism. Howdy, Theorologists. Today we are discussing the broad brushstroke term skepticism, and specifically the misuse and mislabeling of a falsely skeptical approach that hides an objective of debunking. See, underlying any topic we have had or might have in the future on conspiracy theoryology is the skeptical perspective, that point of view which says, I'm not just taking this at face value, and rightly so. There would be no such thing as a conspiracy theory or alternative belief if things always were the way they were in our minds. In fact, there wouldn't be much of anything if we never questioned the truth of what we knew at the moment. There'd be no advancement, no discovery, no need for proof. Fortunately, that's not the case. Skepticism is quite popular. It's, It's even trendy to consider yourself a skeptic. That's why I decided it needed its own devoted episode. Otherwise, it just gets piecemealed into every episode and every topic, and never adequately. Skepticism is a part of our everyday lives, and something that most would consider pretty healthy. No one would debate the need to be a bit skeptical of the safety railing at a scenic lookout along a mountain path. Or the need to be skeptical of the expiration date before taking a gulp of milk from the carton in the refrigerator when you aren't sure how long it's been in there. Yeah, skepticism is healthy, but that's not where skepticism causes an issue. In fact, it's rarely called skepticism. That's just safety consciousness or good sense. Now, skepticism has become an almost professional moniker for those that question beliefs, theories, and experiences that fly in the face of mainstream accepted reality, as well as those that call into question our understanding of the world and how we live and interact. Skepticism as a way of thinking and skeptic as a title has been appropriated almost exclusively by those that ascribe to a mainstream position of scientific skeptical inquiry. In reality, though, Skepticism has an identity crisis. See, there is acceptable skepticism and unacceptable skepticism. Those areas for which skepticism is acceptable is the mainstream, which include things like, oh, anything paranormal, UFO sightings and alien abductions, etc. Claims of deep state influence, supernatural experiences, claims of psychic powers, alternative histories that dramatically alter timelines, secret societies, and the like. But unacceptable skepticism is skepticism in areas such as climate change, social engineering, mainstream pharmacology and medicine, global finance and politics, media and government, and mainstream consensus science orthodoxy. In fact, Quite often, those that hold skeptical views on these off-limits issues are not allowed to refer to themselves as skeptics. They're given mantles such as New Agers, Deniers, Haters, Kooks, and Conspiracy Theorists. Okay, Conspiracy theorist is basically the universal term used to identify those for whom one should be skeptical, and conversely, are not allowed to hold any acceptable, skeptical, uh, skeptical views themselves. But we'll talk about conspiracy theory as a concept in a future episode. So, what is skepticism? Originating in ancient Greece, a skepticism, it's, a, it's just an approach, a formal school of thought within the philosophical discipline of epistemology. Epistemology is essentially the exploration of the theory of knowledge, and skepticism in its various movements essentially concludes that true knowledge is uncertain, and that it's in an extreme case that it's not even possible to know something with absolute certainty. Now, after a brief 1,000-year fade in popularity, skepticism resurfaced with some fresh philosophical faces revisiting and revising skepticism in the 18th uh, 17th and 18th centuries you're you're probably most familiar with the phrase cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am this famously overquoted axiom was due to the work of René Descartes and was actually an effort to refute skepticism and the conclusion that nothing can be known with certainty. Descartes argued that no matter what skeptical possibilities we imagine, there are certain truths that are absolutely certain, such as that fact that I am thinking, and if I am thinking, then I exist, in whatever form that existing might actually be, and however false my world around me is, I exist. In contrast, a Scottish philosopher, David Hume, picked up the empiricist mantle for skepticism, arguing that human belief is not based on reason, but on custom and habit. Hume posited that we are so hard-wired to trust our memories and inductive reasoning that no amount of skeptical argument would dislodge those beliefs. He termed this approach as mitigated skepticism. There are many other names and many, many discussions into philosophical skepticism, but suffice to say that Hume and Descartes brought the topic back into vogue, and it continues to be a popular topic of debate within the field. But I mention that it, it died out for about a millennia, and there is a reason for it. The purest form of skepticism has a flaw. The conclusion it draws... That nothing can be known with certainty is itself an absolute, a certainty. By rationalizing out every absolute, you come to the conclusion, naturally, that absolutely, knowledge is uncertain. It's a catch-22. Now, there are varied flavors of isms within the discussion of knowledge. These various explorations have influenced in the modern approaches to applicable skepticism. So what exactly is this modern arena of skepticism? Is it skepticism? Well, yes and no. Most of the modern mainstream skeptics that you would recognize work within that those parameters of scientific skepticism, a.k.a. empirical skepticism. Scientific skepticism questions beliefs on the basis of current scientific understanding usually discarding beliefs pertaining to phenomena not subject to reliable observation, and therefore not testable empirically. This skeptical inquiry is a position which questions the veracity of claims lacking empirical, read physically observable, evidence, and not subject uh, or subjected to a scientific method of testing. On its surface, it is a reasonable epistemological position for the scientific community to take as a means of checks and balances within its disciplines, but it's usually applied to the examination of claims and theories beyond mainstream science, rather than to routine discussion of scientific research. Beliefs that do not hold up to this skeptical approach are often dismissed as pseudoscience. Unfortunately, As reasoned and practical as this seems, many mainstream skeptics are not skeptical. When it comes to the supernatural, the paranormal, the conspiratorial, and the unexplained, they simply flat out want to prove something false. This is the true rise of modern skepticism, the art of debunking. Call it unhealthy skepticism pathological skepticism call it debunking pseudo skepticism is just as it sounds it's a false position of skepticism that fails to be so the term pseudo skeptic it's not new it appeared in works as early as the 19th century but it was in the late 1980s when a sociology professor Marcello Truzzi really revived and popularized the term pseudo-skeptic as a pronounced criticism of the professional skeptic community. Truzzi used the the term specifically for arguments that used scientific-sounding language simply to disparage and refute given theories and beliefs, but actually failed to follow the precepts and tenets of conventional scientific skepticism. He even outlined a list of attributes of the the pseudo-skeptic. Well, let's go through that list, right? So, number one, the skeptic, uh, the pseudo-skeptic is denying only when doubt has been established. Um, Number two, there are double standards in the application of criticism. Number three, the tendency to discredit. Rather than investigate, four presenting insufficient evidence of proof. The same thing they'll criticize the claim as doing. Number five, assuming criticism requires no burden of proof. Number six, making unsubstantiated counterclaims, and seven, those counterclaims are based on plausibility rather than empirical evidence. And finally, number eight, suggesting that unconvincing evidence provides grounds for completely dismissing a claim. Now, if you're shaking your head in agreement at this assessment of pseudo-skeptics, then you're no doubt wondering where you can find the investigation record of Truzy. If, on the other hand, you're thinking, this sounds like a list made up of a burned, alien-searching, ghost-hunting, birther-truther conspiracy theorist, you might actually be surprised Marcello Truzzi, who passed away in 2003, was not only a successful professor of sociology at multiple universities, but a pronounced skeptic himself. He was one of the founding partners of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, Cop, and created the skeptical journal Explorations, which is now known as the Skeptical inquirer he was the skeptic skeptic and separate from the organi- uh separated from the organization because he promoted pro paranormal representation with the organization as a balance to the strong uh paranormal opposition being represented within the publication i mean in addition to the list of pseudo skeptic characteristics truly Also, listed attributes he characterized as true skepticism. Let's look at that list. One, acceptance of doubt when neither assertion nor denial has been established. Number two, no burden of proof to take an agnostic position, meaning you don't have to worry about proof if you just take a position of uncertainty. Number three, agreement that the body of established knowledge must be based on what is proved, but recognizing that it's often incomplete. And number four, a true skeptic shows even-handedness in requirements for proofs, whatever their implication. Number five, accepting that a failure of proof is in itself proves nothing. And number six, continuing examination by the skeptic of experimental results even when flaws are found. So, Marcelo Truzzi identified early the direction that skepticism was taking and tried to correct it, or at least keep it on course. As claims increased in the paranormal community, the skeptical community moved away from investigation, dug in their heels and began to fight to debunk everything, to understand what debunking really is in this context, let's look at some of the techniques used by the debunking community when attacking a claim. This list comes from a 2014 article in the Epoch Times. First and foremost, debunking is the main goal. At first blush of a claim, the goal is to discredit and ridicule anything that doesn't fit into their belief system. Number two, the use of manipulating language to dismiss theories and findings. Terms such as conspiracy theory and New Age pseudoscience are emotion-laden and ridiculing. The term anecdotal is often misused to dismiss controlled research and legitimate testimony of first-hand experiencers and witnesses. Number 3. The use of documented observations dismissed completely as anecdotes without scientific worth. Number four, unequal requirements applied. Pseudoskeptics are willing to accept the official version of things without proof, but require unrealistic amounts of evidence to accept any other possibility. Now, this one particularly gets my goat. A great example of this uh, is the recent closing of that Sunspot Solar Observatory in New Mexico. There were a a number of hypotheses made for why the sudden and prolonged closure of that facility, and some rather outlandish, and others level and, and reasonable. But when an official position was given of child porn on a hard drive, the case was dropped by the media, without any question or further inquiry. No proof needed. Number five, the debunker treats... Science, that's science with a capital S, as though it were an entity of its own authority that takes positions and views on issues. Science Science is in fact just a tool. It's a method of inquiry, right? Hypothesis, experimentation, results, conclusion. Science doesn't take a position or hold belief on paranormal or conspiratorial subjects. People do. Number six, debunkers don't admit to being a debunker. Just like everyone is innocent in prison, pseudo-skeptics will claim to be true skeptics. Just ask them. Number seven, another symptom of pathological skepticism is found in the tactic of referencing scientific principles as complete, with no need for further progress. This belies the fact that past infallible scientific positions have later been proven wrong. The advancement of science, right? Number eight, conforming to the herd mentality. Debunkers will not support a controversial claim when it's supported by only a few reputable scientists and researchers. Their position will change when a majority states that something is true. Nine, and this gets into ego, self-elevation. It seems to be easier to gain esteem or appear rational and clever through debunking efforts rather than risk credibility by seriously investigating a controversial finding. Number 10, presenting the skeptical approach as the inherently objective position unaffected by personal belief and motive. Of course, all other positions are viewed as subjective and and suspect. And finally, there's always number 11, changing criteria for acceptance. There's always a new line to cross, okay? And that's exploring skepticism and pseudo-skepticism, understanding the background, the terminology, and really where it's come, some of the tactics of the debunkers and what's going on. But, hey, this is a theoryology discussion. Why does it fascinate us, right? That's what we're really asking. So, you know, we've delved into the world of skepticism and the reality of modern skepticism. In In many cases, we're, we're really just dealing with debunking, right? But as usual, the background is only half the story. Now, we need to ask, why does skepticism fascinate us? Why do so many defer to the skeptical opinion of these professional debunkers without another thought? And for others, Why does a healthy, proper skepticism seem so frustrating? Well, let's introduce ourselves to the concept of skeptical appeal and the problem of anti-inference bias. This concept is, is explained and explored experimentally in a paper written by philosopher and cognitive scientist John Turi, which was published in 2014 in the journal Cognitive Science. This is a long paper, and it, it's included as a link in the show notes. For now, we're just going to trim it down, discussing the abstract, the premise of the experiments, and the conclusions drawn, at least some of them. In this paper, Turi is directly addressing the problem of radical classical skepticism, that that extre- extreme skepticism that says we can't know anything. But the conclusions are just as applicable when discussing the approach taken by modern debunkers, since debunkers in this context of paranormal phenomenon and the like take the same radically skeptical position. He posits the question, how does the skeptic get us to doubt what we ordinarily take ourselves to know? Turi proposes two factors. First, the people evaluate inferential belief more harshly than perceptual belief. And second, that in evaluating inferential belief, people will evaluate negative content, that something is not the case, more harshly than positive content, that something is the case. It's no coincidence then that skeptical arguments focus our attention on negative inferential beliefs. But that's a mouthful. What does he mean when we Uh, That we judge inferential beliefs more harshly than perceptual belief. Well, this is the basis of anti-inference bias. And that is also in the show notes, explained in exquisitely exhausting detail by an article from the Indiana Law Journal. Uh, Think of the inferential beliefs as, as those based on circumstantial indirect evidence and deductive reasoning. While the perceptual beliefs are those that are based on direct evidence, right? Things that are are experienced, evidence directly from our senses. People view perception as a more likely source of knowledge than inference. That is, other things being equal, people more readily classify a belief as knowledge when it's based on observation than when it's based on inference from background knowledge. Let's take a UFO example, right? Inferential belief would come from evidence such as there was no radar activity on the night of the sighting and reasoning such as videos are easily altered and tampered. The perceptual belief, though, would come from direct eyewitness testimony from a known source or even your own experience. So, now we know what uh, that inferential perceptual belief difference is, but how does a skeptic focus our attention on negative inferential beliefs? Well, Turi provides a well-used skeptical strategy, which is an argument in three parts, and a pretty classic uh, philosophical logic structure, right? Argument one, if we know that X is true, then we know that Y is is true also. Number two. But, we don't know that Y is true. So, therefore, number three. We don't know that X is true. It sounds logical. Perhaps at first blush, but it's actually a paradox. It assumes that lack of certainty about the second truth feeds back and negates the first. Right? That uncertainty about Y negates X. Remember, the first statement is an if-then. If you know X, then you know Y. The second statement, that we don't know Y, is a negative. And not the same as saying that Y is false, just that we can't be sure that Y is true or not. It's establishing uncertainty of knowledge of Y, and concluding that if you have to be uncertain, or it, concluding that if you're uncertain about Y, then you have to be uncertain about X. Okay, that's a lot of, uh, you know, philosophical algebra. So let's go back to the UFO example and apply this argument as the skeptic would in order to debunk your claim. So, statement one. If you saw an object moving unlike any conventional craft found on Earth, then the object you saw cannot be from Earth. That's a pretty reasonable statement. And it's something that can be explored, investigated. But, statement two. The skeptic would say, we don't know that the object you saw cannot be from Earth. So, and then, then that's a reasonable argument, right? So our, our why statement, we can't be certain that it's not from Earth. But then we get to statement three. If we can't be certain of um. statement two, Right, that that the object uh, we saw cannot be from Earth, then you could not uh, have seen an object moving unlike any conventional craft on Earth. Now, this is not reasonable. It simply dismisses your experience without explanation or proof. It's a counterclaim meant to discredit your perceptions. Right? If you don't know that it can be from Earth, well then, you can't have seen an object moving unlike anything uh, found on Earth. This, okay, this is just my effort at showing the absurdity of the skeptical argument. But Turi provides an example that is entirely non-paranormal and very ordinary, right? It's beautifully done and it exemplifies that effect that this skeptical argument can have in causing us to question what we would ordinarily know or Consider knowledge. So, I'm going to just read this short passage verbatim. Turi states, We ordinarily take ourselves to know what natural kinds uh, of things belong to, right? For instance, if person A named Zoe goes to the zoo and sees a large, menacing, spotted feline in the exhibit labeled Jaguar, She knows that the animal is a jaguar. However, it is not unheard of for zoos to make mistakes or temporary substitutions in a pinch to please their patrons. Does Zoe know that the animal is not a leopard that looks just like a jaguar in a jaguar display? It can seem that Zoe does not know this. But of course, Zoe knows that if the animal is a jaguar... Then it is not a leopard of any sort. More pointedly, she knows that if it is a jaguar, then it is not a leopard that looks like a jaguar in a jaguar display. But Zoe does not know that the animal is not a leopard that looks just like a jaguar in a jaguar display. So the skeptic invites us to conclude Zoe does not know that it is a jaguar after all. Now, did that start out making perfect sense and end with your head hurting and wondering what I was rambling about? Yeah, me too. Definitely, this is where I suggest read this paper in the show notes, and you'll catch yourself rereading it several times just to work through the intentional obfuscation and garbled logic of this skeptical argument. Turi expands on this example with a couple of experiments that. Provide results confirming the strange impact this skeptical argument has, uh, you know, in this skeptical flipping uh, on people's confidence in what they know. As we discussed before, other things being equal, an inferential belief that something is the case is more likely to be classified as knowledge than an inferential belief that something is not the case. That is why the skeptical argument is so powerful. It first gets us to focus on what seems like an inferential belief, that an observation uh, is no further help, right? That the, the need to observe something is of no use. We're left to infer the relevant proposition from prior experience and background knowledge then. The, then the argument gets us to focus on whether something is not the case, so that belief now has negative content. With that, we are naturally less likely to ascribe any confidence to knowledge of that belief. Turi even posits that it's possible that the appeal to skepticism has nothing to do with either the form of argument the skeptic employs, or even the cleverness of the alternative scenarios proposed by the debunker. He thinks that it it could just be that the appeal is due to the fact that we are naturally heavily biased against classifying negative inferential beliefs as knowledge. And so ends our wandering path through a philosophical logic lesson. I mean, it's heady stuff and obviously not what is going through our minds when we're presented with a skeptical viewpoint of a controversial topic. We don't consciously think of the tactics being utilized. We don't contemplate the assault on our perceptions and the effort to flip us toward inference and negative connotations, what we hear is a seemingly logical, objective argument about the absurdity of a claim, and how the pseudo-skeptics are saving us from accidentally even considering something so outlandish and unscientific. The debunker has found a way to call into question any proof that the claim may present, with no need to provide any proof of their own for the counterclaim. The mere uncertainty of the claim itself is all the proof they need in order to validate their own position. In the end, we are fascinated by skeptical viewpoints because they make us doubt beliefs that we form using our own perception, contradicting our natural psychological inclinations. In many cases, rightly so. The legal world struggles with this heavily, because things like unreliable eyewitness testimony often supersedes vetted indirect and inferential evidence, even when it shouldn't. Healthy skepticism can be a valuable tool on either side of the believer aisle, whether it be conspiracy, paranormal, and supernatural phenomenon, or scientific and spiritual belief it's useful to seek greater knowledge of any claim. And the scientific method is actually a very practical way to evaluate and test most claims, though the reliance on material observation is a weak point in applying it to every claim. What is not helpful is pseudo-skeptical attack aimed at debunking and dismissing claims, especially when that fake skepticism is driven by preconceived opinions and foregone conclusions based on personal agenda. As I said, skeptical inquiry is it's not bad in itself. In principle, most organizations, both in support of skeptical investigation as well as those pro-paranormal uh, discovery, you know, espouse a healthy skeptical policy. The Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which continues to be a leading effort in skeptical investigation, features a practice of careful, rational examination, highlighting a guide on their site titled Proper Criticism. Yet in practice, the efforts of many of their members are centered on debunking any extraordinary claim that comes along. Whole cloth. We are hardwired to find greater certainty of belief and ascribe knowledge to things we can perceive and observe, which we also addressed in the Flat Earth discussion, by the way. 18th century Scottish philosopher Thomas Reed even argued that it is rational to accept common-sense beliefs, such as the basic reliability of our senses or reason, our memories, and inductive reasoning, even though none of these things can be proved. More importantly we aren't going to give much credence to negative inference and, in fact, are more likely to dismiss any claim built on negative inference. The pseudo-skeptic uses this psychology to their advantage. Without the need to provide proof to the contrary, a claim can be debunked by simply arguing uncertainty into the claim, flipping the argument into a negative context, and then concluding intellectual superiority. The old adage seeing is believing very much rings true with us unless of course what you see goes against the consensus of belief about what you should have seen then your perceptions are wrong and you can't know that what you saw was not something else that you didn't see but should have seen therefore you didn't see it you see what i mean okay that is all for today Thanks for joining me as we explore this world of debunking and pseudo-skepticism. Please click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. Connect with me via email. Contact at conspiracytheology.com. Join the Facebook discussion group. Find me on Twitter at Pod, Or just recommend the show to others. All the info can be found at the show website, conspiracytheorology.com including how to support the podcast on Patreon. Music, of course, is by Adam Henry Garcia. If you'd like to hear more, visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. Now, I'll see you again next time when we tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. So until then, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.